You may be seated. This week, we're going to read the most radical thing that Jesus ever said. Jesus says a lot of great things. But this is world-changing, mess with your head, everybody's going to hate this. Radical. It's so good. And it's part of the pattern that we saw established last week. Jesus is revealing to his followers the principles behind the Old Testament laws. The law was given to the ancient Hebrew people as they came out of slavery in Egypt for their own well-being, Deuteronomy tells us, and as a testimony to the other groups of people who lived around them. While in slavery, the ancient Hebrew people had been denied the opportunity to build their own society, so God gave them a solid foundation to start from when they came out. But a system of rules, no matter how complex, is always going to be inadequate for good life. And as we mature, we have to learn how to decide what to do and not just a list of things not to do. From the beginning, God knew that the rules would never get us as far as we need to go. And so with extravagant love and grace at just the right time, God revealed to us the principle behind the rule by sending Jesus to show us what that looks like in human form. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sums up the inclusive, loving, healing, restorative principles that direct life in the revolutionary kingdom of God, which Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, because he doesn't say God, he says heaven instead. Jesus invites regular folk like us to actually live out these principles right here and right now, not when we get to heaven when we die, right here. Because when we live this way, the kingdom of heaven is revealed through us. So let us listen now in the reading of scripture for the word and the wisdom of God. From the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is This is the word of God for all people. Mohandas Gandhi famously said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. 
And with all due respect to the Mahatma, that's not technically true. None of these verses are going to make sense to us unless we understand an eye for an eye. This rule has become about what we're allowed to do to each other, right? But originally, it was about what God's people were not allowed to do to each other. Because as barbaric as it sounds to us, an eye for an eye was an attempt to limit the cycle of violence. Think about it. Our natural reaction when someone hurts us is to hurt them worse so they don't ever try to do it again. If you poke out one of my eyes, I'm going to poke out both of yours. So maybe you won't mess with me again. This response is true whether we're talking about violence or insults on social media or international relations. We don't just retaliate in kind, we escalate as an attempt at deterring. But it never works. So God gave the ancient Hebrews a rule against that escalation. An eye for an eye was a click forward in human social development, only one for only one, and then it stops. God was trying to interrupt our natural cycle of ever-increasing violence. It's a very good rule. But then Jesus comes and clicks it forward again. In verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And at first glance, this seems really confusing to us because there are other biblical texts that clearly tell us to resist evil. As Christians, we are called to do justice. But what Jesus is saying here is that as we do justice, we must not violently resist the person doing the evil. Because the person is not the same as the evil that they're doing. This was a massive shift in thought that came about through the Jesus-following community, and let's be honest, we still struggle with it today. There is a difference. Our Christian commitment says there is a difference between a person and the evil things they do. We have to be able to separate that. But then this begs the question, if we are called to do justice, how do we resist evil without resisting the person? And what Jesus describes next are principles for creative resistance. These are principles for living faithfully in a faithless world. They work in our private interactions and in our public life if we are brave enough to apply them. They're not easy. And Jesus is the master social commentator. As he guides us towards abundant life in our interpersonal relationships, he simultaneously calls out the larger system of injustice without ever saying the name Roman Empire. 
And here at Zion, we are committed to doing justice, to loving mercy, and to walking humbly with God. And Jesus' principles for creative resistance will help us be the people that we want to be. The people that we know God is calling us to be. We want to resist evil without resisting the person, right? Without doing violence. So what are these principles for creative resistance? Well, the first principle is that creative resistance upholds human dignity. Verse 39 says, if anyone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. How does this work? So, so we're facing off, right? So show me where your right cheek is. Just do me a favor, point to your right cheek. Okay. What are my options for hitting you on that right cheek if we're facing each other? Okay. I can slap you or punch you with my left hand, right? Everybody's clear on this? Okay. Problem with this is that in the ancient world, you would never reach out with your left hand to another person because you used your left hand for other things. So what's my only other option? To hit you on your right cheek? After that. Now, a backhand slap is the way a master hits a slave. It's the way a cruel adult hits a child. It's the way a Nazi guard hits a Jew in a concentration camp. It's how you hit someone weaker than you and someone that you believe is less human than you are. It's designed to humiliate you as much as it's designed to physically hurt you. And if you are the one receiving that strike, what do you do about that? Well, Jesus' principle for creative resistance says that you do not strike back. You turn your head, right? I just hit you on this side. You turn your head, thank you, Lori actually did it. You turn your head. This is good. You should. I want you to see what this is. So you turn your head so that if I'm going to hit you again, I have to hit you with my right hand, full on like this. This is the way equals hit each other. This is the way you hit each other in a fair fight. So without saying a word and without hitting me back, You have just proved that you are equal in every way, as I have tried to demean you. Just by turning your face and forcing me, if I'm going to hit you again, to hit you as an equal. You have upheld your human dignity by refusing to accept the humiliation that I offered you. And now it's a whole new ballgame, right? Creative resistance always upholds human dignity. The second principle for creative resistance is to expose the system of injustice. Verse 40 says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, you give your cloak as well. These ancient words for this are hard. 
This situation, which we do not initially see from reading, but you pay me to do the research, so I did. This situation, my friends, is about being in court for a debt that you are not able to repay. Now, the ordinary folk that Jesus were talking to, that Jesus was talking to, were in debt because they couldn't make enough money to live on because the system was stacked against them. Their last resort was to take out a loan in order to survive. And these loans had exorbitant, predatory, shall we say, payday lending interest rates. So that once you took out a loan, it was almost impossible to pay it back. Of course, you could choose not to take out a loan like a responsible person should. However, if the Roman tax collectors come to your house and you can't pay up, they're going to take your livestock or your house or your child. So people are caught in this system of oppression and poverty the empire's system that was designed to never work in their favor. And so eventually people wind up in court. So in this case, got your outer garment, and you're in court, and this outer garment has been demanded from you. And this is pretty bad, because this is your more valuable garment. This is what you use to keep warm at night. In fact, in the Old Testament law, if a poor person put up her outer garment as collateral, the, uh, the person she was in debt to was required to give it back to her every night so she could sleep in it, so she could still be warm enough. So what happens when you get to court? You are guilty of defaulting on your loan, and you have to hand over your collateral. But instead of just handing over your outer garment, you hand over your inner garment too. And then what happens? You're buck naked in the middle of the courtroom. This literally, this is what this third verse is about. Which is really embarrassing for you. However, in the ancient world, your nakedness was a bigger problem for the person left holding your garment than it was for you. In the ancient world, the bulk of the shame fell on the one who looked at the naked person, or worse, the one who caused the nakedness. My friends, this is excellent, gutsy, risky, creative resistance. What really gets exposed here is not just you, but the injustice of the system and the people who are participating in it. Creative resistance exposes the injustice built into the system. The third principle of creative resistance is to turn the tables. Verse 41 says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
It was common practice in the ancient world for Roman soldiers to be able to conscript someone to force them to carry the soldier's gear, which could weigh up to 80 pounds. They could force that person to carry that pack for a mile. It was a terrible abuse of power. And the people obviously hated it, and they would have wanted to avoid that at all costs. But Jesus' bizarre response to this forced labor is to literally go the extra mile. That's where the phrase comes from. In this moment of creative resistance, the tables of power get turned. Suddenly, the one who was in charge, the soldier who forced the labor, is in the position of having to try to get his own pack back. (laughs) Suddenly, the soldier has no idea what's going on here. Does this peasant not understand how things work? Does she think she's going to get paid if she carries the pack for further? Is she trying to keep the supplies? Is she looking for ways to get the soldier in trouble? What's going on? The soldier is baffled by this. Choosing to do something is a totally different experience than someone forcing you to do it. And it throws the evildoer off balance. Creative resistance turns the tables and throws the power dynamic off balance. And after describing how creative resistance upholds human dignity, exposes the injustice in the system, and turns the tables on power, Jesus offers one more example, but this one is different. In the first three, he's put his audience members in the less powerful position. They're the ones being put upon. But in the last example, Jesus demonstrates how creative resistance holds true no matter who has the power. Verse 42 says, Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. In this case, the borrowers have become the lenders. Those who've been stomped on are now wearing the boots. And what are they going to do? Creative resistance is a principle for the oppressed and the oppressors. Unless we push against it, the systems of this world trap us, both the oppressed and the oppressors. Now, if you are oppressed, it can be really hard to see how the oppressors might be trapped. Because don't they have all the power? Kind of. Think for a second about how strong our cultural conditioning is. In order to stay safe, which we are all naturally inclined to do, we, we have to play by the rules. Now, those who choose to play by those rules and oppress others, they get a lot of benefits. But they're still trapped by the system. They need to be set free. Resistance is a courageous act regardless of which side you're on. For those with privilege, 
The principle of creative resistance is to resist the temptation to oppress others. To not do to others what's been done to you. Or to not do what you've seen other people do. Just because you can does not mean you should. And so now we come to the core of the text, the issue, the very center of Jesus' radical message. Verse 43, you have heard it said, he's quoting the law again, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Duh. It's what we do. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. That's so annoying. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the first thing you need to know is that that word perfect does not mean never makes mistakes, like our English word means. It means complete. Be whole. Be mature. In essence, be able to live by the principles instead of the rules. Right here with Jesus in this verse is the first ever recorded example in history of loving your neighbors, not as a trick, and not as a way to get a reward from God, but just because it is the most human way to live. If we really want to change the world, loving our enemies is the only way to do it. Anything less radical will not be enough. Jesus has just finished describing this cycle of violence that gets perpetuated when we take an eye for an eye and then that person takes an eye and the next person takes an eye. Loving our enemies is the only way to end that cycle once and for all. And these principles of creative resistance are actually ways to love our enemies. When we love our enemies, we uphold their human dignity and not just our own. We expose the unjust system as an act of love because it helps them see how harmful their complicity is to them. We turn the tables and demonstrate how many different options there are in a situation that seemed like it had only one solution. And when we finally get some power, we refuse to treat others the way we've been treated. This kind of behavior is shocking. It is countercultural. It is complete, mature, and as perfect as the love of God. And it will stand out in a society that is powered by a system that runs at cross-purposes to the gospel. The hard truth about loving your enemies, we're all feeling really good right now. The hard truth about loving your enemies is that it's going to cost us. Your enemies may beat you. 
They may force you into backbreaking labor. They may humiliate you. And they may take the very shirt off your back. And in that moment, the very power of God alive in you will empower you to absorb that without flinging it back at them. You will resist evil without doing violence to that person. And far from being a weak activity, this is the strongest thing a human being could possibly do. It takes way more courage, more integrity, more steadfastness, and more faith to see injustice for what it is and to let your very body be the site of revealing that evil. And when we choose to do that, we will be in very good company because that was the path chosen by Jesus himself. Jesus loved his enemies so much that he let his own body be the site where all the evil in our world was finally revealed and proved to be powerless. And as we engage in acts of creative resistance in our private lives and in our public lives, we may feel like we are making a spectacle of ourselves. But really, we will be following the example of our older brother, Jesus. Making a spectacle of the system that is designed for our destruction. And the hardest lesson of all is that if we actually do this, it might cost us our life, which is why nobody wants to. But if it does, we will not fear because this weak system of greed and fear and shame will ultimately, someday, somehow, through the power of God, it will give way to the kingdom of heaven, which is full of justice and peace and love. And nothing can stop the movement of God in our world. Amen. As Brian comes back to the piano, I want to invite you into a few moments of reflection. This is the most important thing that Jesus said. This is how the world changes. And we need some time to absorb this. So I invite you to allow yourselves to relax this morning. You might notice if you're holding tension in your body anywhere and let that go in your shoulders or your jaw. You might want to close your eyes to help you be less distracted. Just see what comes to mind from what you've heard today. Where in this story do you see yourself? Because that's where the wisdom is for you.
Let the wise and loving voice of God within you speak comfort and redirection as you need it today. There's no judgment here. Just a desire to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. creatively resisting the forces designed for oppression. Make us into everyday radicals and set us free. Amen.